This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. On this week's Money and Markets podcast, we take a look at the good, the bad and the downright ugly from this week's earnings update. And joining me this week is Danny Houston. Hi, Laura. Yeah, there have been some real stinkers, including PayPal, Airbnb and ASOS. But British Airways owner IAG is back in profit and analysts are rushing to upgrade their stock price targets, helping the stock soar. Plus, I'll assess JD Sports' first big move in its growth plan. House prices might have declined in April after three months of recovery, but it's still pretty tough out there, especially when it comes to first-time buyers paying exorbitant rents. So I'll be looking at a new 100% mortgage aimed at renters who don't have the help of the Bank of Mum and Dad. Rachel Vay, AJ Bell's Head of Policy Development, will be joining us to talk through why AJ Bell's calling for one ISA rather than the hodgepodge of complicated offerings currently available. And Dan Coatesworth talks to Tejas Desai from Global X about how technology could significantly change all of our shopping experiences. So plenty to rattle through, but we have to start with the latest US inflation figures, which have been casting a shadow over markets all week. And we're recording this just after two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. And we got the number an hour ago and you could almost hear a giant exhale from across the Atlantic as that number sort of fell into people's inboxes. The headline rate is down below 5% for the first time in two years. So there'll be a lot there that will make the investor and the beleaguered US consumer really sit up and take notice. But it's the core number, I think, that is really going to resonate because 5.5% core inflation, that really hit expectations like a nail on the head. And it kind of paves the way for a pause in the Fed uh, rate hike cycle. But it's unlikely to lead for a clamour for cuts in the near term. So it does really give central bankers a a bit of breathing space because as odd as it might sound, um, 2% still a long way off. This is kind of Goldilocks territory at the moment. It's not too hot, but it's not cool enough for any major pivot that could allow some stubborn tendrils to grab hold and stick because that is the danger that people get really excited and say, the country feels better now, inflation's falling. And then that pain, that medicine that's tasted so awful, many people might say, we don't need to take it anymore. And clearly, you know, inflation is still too hot. There are still things which are rising at the cost of like key necessities, shelter still heading the wrong way. And the big takeaway in the US, as well as here in the UK, where honestly, 5% right now sounds downright fantastic. But even if inflation, that inflation number is falling, it doesn't mean that prices are falling. And I think that a lot of people really feeling inflation weary. Um, They're just fed up with the whole thing. Yeah, quite a different story in the UK, though, in comparison to those US figures where we still have much higher inflation. And as we record this, um, we're less than 24 hours away from the next interest rate decision from the Bank of England. And 
there's a 99% expectation um, that interest rates are going to rise once again. So we're definitely not on the same page as the US at the moment. There's expectation that maybe after that increase, there'll be another one, maybe two. And then we won't start to see cutting until the start of next year. But with the big caveat to that is that the expectations have been changing quite dramatically recently. And so what we're expecting today might be very different to what we're expecting in a couple of months' time. But let's move on to markets and earnings updates. They've been coming in thick and fast in the past week. So, Danny, let's start with the bad news, shall we? Yeah, and I'm going to pick out a few. And they really did upset markets. And I think we do need to start with PayPal because PayPal stock slumped 12% um, the day after it posted its update, which cut growth guidance. Real concerns about its growth potential amid what is a really challenging macro environment. We've still got high inflation, even though it's moderated somewhat in the US. We've still got rising interest rates. We just had an interest rate hike from the Fed and still big worries about a slowing economy. And that's really discouraged consumer spending on big ticket items. And I think a lot of investors are also looking at what's going on with PayPal and thinking, look, the branded checkout button, the bit that's a high margin business, it's it's not doing quite as well as a lot of people thought. And it could be that it is losing market share to Apple. So I, I think a lot of people will be taking a long look at what happens next with PayPal. We've already seen it cutting 7% of its workforce, about 2,000 employees. And when you look back at how it's performed in comparison with the NASDAQ, you know, NASDAQ was up 17% and PayPal down 7% in 2023. So, you know, clearly um, you can see the differences there. There was also a bit of a shock from Airbnb. Um, it released numbers in after hours trading. And the good news was the first thing that got people's attention because it, it did have better than expected quarterly performance. But again, it was the outlook that really chilled. I think there's a big concern that um, the there's a slowdown really in revenue growth forecast for the second quarter. We had revenue growth of 20% in the first quarter and they're now expecting somewhere between 12 and 16%. Now that reflects fewer bookings and also lower average daily rates. Because let's be honest, if people can find the most affordable accommodation, that is what they are going to look for. And there will be some people taking a look at what's going on with Airbnb and wondering if it's the first sign that maybe that resilient travel spend might finally be coming under pressure. There's also issues with increased competition from the likes of Booking.com and Expedia. And there is some tightening up of regulations. So, for example, here in the UK, there are plans potentially in in the um, upcoming to make homeowners listing entire properties on these short-term let platforms to have to seek planning permission first. And the last one on my ugly list, I'm afraid, is ASOS. Do you buy stuff from ASOS, Laura? I used to a lot and now the occasional item, but not that much. 
Well, it seems that you are not in the minority. Sales and margins are down. Net debt has ballooned. Pre-tax losses are getting worse. So let's just talk through a few of these horrible numbers. So ASOS reported a first half loss before tax up to 290 million. That's from 15 million. It's been impacted by a slowdown in consumer spend as well as something that it is deliberately doing. So it's got this turnaround plan called driving change and it is basically trying not to discount as much. And of course, you know, when you get used to going to somewhere like ASOS to get stuff which has been marked down and then you find that it's not been marked down, then, you know, it's a business that's really not in tune with its consumer. So it it does seem to be paying the price and losing customers and then losing money. So uh, that's, that's a roundup of the ugly and the bad. And let's move on to more positive news then. So what what are the good ones that have come out? There has been quite a bit of positive news about actually. So um, take a look at Fox, Toyota, Coty, the fragrance people, Adidas, despite issues with its uh, Yeezy trainers, which uh, we've no idea what it's going to do with them. And also Apple was uh, much better than many people had been anticipating. But the one I want to pick on this week is the British Airways owner IAG because it it had a momentous moment, a milestone, because it unveiled its first operating profit since the pandemic. So we know that there are easing oil prices. uh, That has helped with costs. And we know that passenger numbers have been robust. Lots of people wanting to get away, to see friends, to see family, just to enjoy travel again. Um, So bookings are incredibly healthy and we're also expecting, we're being guided, that next year we'll see the return of the dividend. Now, there are a couple of sort of flies in the ointment concern about the rebound in business travel. But having said that, we also um, heard from Lufthansa today saying that they were seeing demand for first class up from travellers. But what's happened with BA is that... um, uh, one analyst, Liberium, actually lifted its price target to 350 from 240 pence. It said that um, earnings momentum were set to continue. So that's more than double um, the expectation of uh, where it's going to go compared with where it is. Just sticking with travel briefly, Boeing did incredibly well off the back of news that a spat with Ryanair, which has lasted 18 months, over how much Ryanair was going to pay for some new Max 10s. That has finally been resolved. So Ryanair has signed on the dotted line for at least 150 new aircraft with 150 on option as well. Now, Ryanair plans to almost double flying hours by 2034. And the one thing that these new planes do is they allow them to put more bums on seats. So there are 21% more seats. Um, They take less fuel, so of course that's cheaper. And Ryanair, like them or loathe them, they are all about trying to give you more, well, to make you pay less for the flight, but charge you for other things. Um, I'm going to just point to one other deal which has been in the offing this week, and that is the UK sportswear giant JD Sports. It has been touting this 
big growth plan for uh, quite a while now. And it's finally made its first move with a bid for the French firm Courier. Now, on paper, that's a really smart move because uh, Courier's got a, a huge number of stores in France and right across Europe. It's already got a great reputation with its consumer for you know, buying those big sporting brands. And that should allow JD Sports to really integrate the business with its own business in Europe quite nicely and hopefully narrow margins there as well and give it more buying power when it comes to those bands. Because, you know, athleisure wear, it's, it's huge. You know, people, when they're going to the office now, they're wearing much more relaxed clothing. They've probably got trainers on their feet. And I know certainly a healthy lifestyle and lots of running is something that we've just been talking about. So, uh, yeah, for, for JD Sports, um, this clearly is a growth plan that we are expecting to see more of going forward. And if you've ever wondered about what the future of shopping might look like, then you are going to love our next segment. Dan Coatesworth recently caught up with Global X research analyst Tejas Desai to talk about e-commerce, immersive shopping experiences and how that intersects with the metaverse. So let's hear what he had to say. Lots of people are returning to actually sort of physical stores now. Um, after, you know, we've seen a couple of years of online companies doing very well during the pandemic, but now people are sort of going back to their old sort of shopping habits. I'm just wondering to get your sort of ideas of what, what online retailers might do to sort of fight back. Does this sort of suggest they're going to have to offer perhaps more immersive shopping experiences? Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a great question. And, uh, you know, this is something that we were expecting for a while. Uh, the pandemic was uh, such a unique situation where, uh, you know, people basically didn't have the option to go out and shop. So you had digital commerce platforms uh, see this, this jump in volume. And now with normalcy, people are obviously stepping into the store. We believe that there are uh, very unique technological uh, solutions that will uh, that will have to be put in place at the intersection of both online and offline. Because what has happened over the last two years is that uh, the expectations that consumers have, um, you know, even when they are shopping offline or online, I mean, uh, those have changed significantly. And by that, what I mean is, you know, people are used to a price discovery, um, you know, ordering things and getting them. Um, you know, uh, as per their convenience and as per their requests. Uh, there were several, uh, you know, areas where online commerce, for example, shine, but offline commerce didn't, basically because of the unlimited catalog and, and everything around that. So, you know, we believe that offline commerce uh, will have to evolve uh, in the direction of digitization. Um, you know, it, it must be more common for uh, for stores to invest in technology um, to, to enable things such as you know, checking inventory levels very easily or processing returns very easily, um, you know, enabling quick commerce, looking up what's available in a store uh, that's next to me uh, and then having that delivered at the store while I'm shopping or in a couple hours at my doorstep. Um, you know, if you look at the large retailers such as Amazon, uh, again, or even Walmart, and this, this is the area that they're investing in. Just a couple of months ago, um, Amazon's new CEO uh, published his annual shareholder letter where he clearly underlined that Amazon would be investing more in launching offline stores um, going forward. So I think that's one area where um, you know, brands, uh, where companies will have to invest aggressively in making that intersection happen um, because consumer behavior is clearly indicating that that's where the opportunity is. I know that when, whenever I sort of buy groceries online, 
often wonder, well, would it be amazing if I could sort of see, um, sort of browse the supermarket virtually as if I was actually in that shop? Because sometimes you, you sort of, you go into a shop and you look at the shelves and think, oh, I, you know, I quite fancy that. I'm just wondering, does this sort of technology exist for companies to be able to do that? You know, actually immerse you in, you know, as if you were in the shop, but you're still actually sitting at home just looking at, looking at a screen. Absolutely. I think, you know, again, what has happened during during the pandemic was, you know, we've had broad category expansion, right? Uh, where we have all these categories such as food delivery or grocery or medicines uh, with very unique characteristics expand. And I think technology has to step up um, in order to solve uh, for each of these, uh, you know, each of these unique, very unique dynamics, right? So, um, you know, Walmart, for example, has many pilots running uh, in process where you can basically shop an aisle or walk through an aisle using a simple VR setup. Um, you know, several startups within the private markets are also working on technology, um, you know, that that uh, basically could allow for, again, uh, you know, it's plug and play technologies, plug and play systems that um, that can give you a view of a supermarket, you know, sitting right, um, you know, inside your home. There are several mobile apps that allow shopping in that sense as well. So I think that's definitely where uh, tech is broadly uh, headed uh, in terms of, you know, consumers are showing a lot of inclination towards using these tools as well. What about um, the sort of the metaverse? I know it's still still in its early days, but, um, you know, I, c- I can imagine sort of the, the concept of you're, you're in a sort of virtual world and you meet your friends and, and their avatars are there. Could you could could you sort of interact to get two different people on two different computers, perhaps going through the same virtual shopping experience, and sort of um, you suggest products to your friends? Is that is that sort of an idea that could be uh, happening soon, or is that you know years down the line before we'll see something like that? I think that could happen pretty soon. Um, you know, a, a different version of that uh, is already happening within, for example, gaming universes, right where. Um, you know, two friends get together and play a game. You know, end up building their own virtual world. Um, you know, with with several incentive structure around it. Uh, Roblox, which is a gaming platform that is extremely popular, doing that now on the commerce side of things. I mean, definitely there are very unique uh, challenges there. But you know, we've also seen the rise of uh, you know live commerce, for example, which in a way is not immersive shopping, but is one step in in that direction. Right? We have. You know, marketplaces like Sheen or several other in China that are emerging where, you know, certain deals go online for five or six minutes and you have you know, people logging in uh, to shop within a specific window of time, um, you know, and then sort of participating in that social equation uh, around shopping. So I think eventually when, um, you know, we have, obviously there are uh, technical challenges around it, such as, you know, you need a very fast internet connection. You need uh, a very good smartphone to be able to, um, you know, seamlessly enjoy these experiences. So I think technology also has to evolve. Uh, foundational tools and platforms have to evolve. Uh, in that sense, the metaverse is a bit further away. But I think, uh, you know, shopping for virtual goods, buying virtual uh, things online is coming faster than we realize. I mean, the big question, I guess, is um, this is clearly going to be costing companies a lot of money to invest in this technology. Is there sort of an appetite to to sort of see this as a very good investment for the long term or uh, do you think the world will sort of see a sort of a polarized view where some companies will say this is fine we'll, we'll invest but others will say you know let's just wait until this is much more proven technology we we don't mind if we're not first mover advantages but we'd rather test if, it, if it's worth spending that cash. Uh, I think uh, it's going to be a mix of both, but what we know for sure is that uh, you know immersive experiences are really inevitable. 
Um, you have large companies like again Walmart, for example, or Target, or or any you know large retail retailer around the world that has the balance sheet flexibility and and the capability to to invest in technological solutions. Um, you know this also includes um, you know a lot of retailers that have made very aggressive transition uh, to e-commerce and and technological uh, solutions in the past uh, few years here. Up saying um, you know this is something that we can experiment with. And try to establish, uh, you know, some sort of presence with. Over the, over the past couple of years, we've had several retailers uh, and even brands such as Nike and Adidas, you know, enter uh, metaverses that are uh, in very nascent stages. You know, buy virtual real estate, uh, set up virtual brands, uh, create virtual products, so on and so forth. So, you know, certainly brands that are um, that have the flexibility um, to try these experiments are are embracing, and that's a good sign. And I think it's also a good sign that consumers are are demanding more and more of this, right? Um, an average consumer, uh, at least here in the in the U.S., spends almost eight hours a day connected uh, to the internet. Um, you know, after COVID, that number keeps uh, increasing day by day. And I think uh, you know that's where uh, majority of the business, majority of the consumption, is eventually headed. Um, and brands have to be prepared uh, if they want to be time-proof. Well, Tejas Desai from GlobalX, thank you ever so much for joining us. That's really fascinating. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Dan, talking to Tejas Desai from GlobalX. Now, Laura, I know that there are concerns about the potential for house buyers taking up a 100% mortgage, maybe pushing them into negative equity. But I couldn't have bought my first house without such an offer. I mean, it was a lot of years ago now, but... We just didn't have the deposit available to us. So that was a fantastic opportunity for us. And we weren't facing house prices the way that they are and rents going up as well. So one provider thinks that it might have a solution. Yeah, so this is the news this week that um, thanks to Skipton Building Society, 100% mortgages may be back. So they have announced plans to launch mortgages for first-time buyers who don't have a deposit. So at the moment, usually the minimum you'd need is a 5% deposit, um, which if you're buying in more expensive areas is still quite a big ask, even though it's a relatively low deposit. Um, So the new plans from Skipton Building Society, they're going to come up with a way of instead of having a deposit, they will use um, applicants' ability to pay rent as proof that they can keep up with a mortgage. So if you can demonstrate a history of paying rent for up to two years, um, then they will take that as a good evidence that you would be able to afford a mortgage. Um, The exact details of it haven't been released yet. Skipton released a bit of information, but they're remaining tight-lipped about the exact product details, presumably until it fully launches. it's thought that the deal would be fixed over two years or more um, to guard against borrowers potentially ending up in negative equity. But it's a real boom for first-time buyers potentially, and particularly for those ones who don't have the help of the bank of mum and dad. So what we see so often is that either the bank of mum and dad lends their money towards a deposit um, or gifts them money or people have to rely on inheritance, for example, uh, before they can afford that deposit for their first home. And that's because, as you say, Danny, rents are so high at the moment. And the frustration for a lot of first-time buyers is they're often paying more in rent than they would be paying for a mortgage, but they're deemed 
not to qualify for the mortgage, even though they could clearly sufficiently pay for it each month. But the return of that 100% mortgage has some people feeling slightly nervous. So this will be the first one available since the last financial crisis. Um, some or banks already and smaller building societies are willing to lend 100%, but only on the basis that a family member um, puts down a deposit of up to 20%, almost like a guarantor for the mortgage. Um, so this if it is launched as such, it would be the first pure 100% mortgage um, since the last financial crisis. And there are some concerns, I think, that people think if we go back to 100% mortgages, that's what caused the last crash. They have images of you know those runs on the bank outside Northern Rock. But actually, the landscape of, has changed a lot since those mortgages were offered. I mean, at the time, we had um, lenders offering 125% mortgages so that people could use some of the money to do up a property, for example, or borrow extra. I don't think there's any risk that we're going to go back to that level. And also, the regulator's lending criteria is much stricter now. Um, and it means that whilst you might be offered a 100% mortgage, there are still limits on how much you can borrow as a multiple of your income. So for lots of people, this tends to be, you know, four, four and a half times your annual income um, or combined income if you're buying with someone else. So that would act as a limit on how much you could borrow. And there's also more stress testing now in terms of if interest rates rose, could you still afford these payments and more of those kind of affordability assessments than there were in the financial crisis. But I think it's interesting. It's essentially a way that smaller building societies can innovate on their products and get a different tranche of customers in rather than just competing on price. And there are certainly a lot of people out there who are in professional jobs earning decent money, but with the rising cost of everything plus rent going up, just don't have that ability to put away money to save for a deposit, or certainly it would take them decades to do so. Uh, for me, it was just the only way that I could get on the housing ladder. And there will be lots of people um, listening to this thinking, wow, maybe this is my opportunity. But I have seen some commentary that, you know, Skipton's only doing this because interest rates are now at a decent level. So it can make some money. There is an element to that, maybe. I think the difficulty with lenders at the moment, and particularly the smaller building society lenders who have smaller books of business, is that they can compete on rates. But if they have a leading rate in the market, then they get flooded with applicants and they have to withdraw that product almost as quickly as they released it because they just don't have the capacity for all of, the, all of that demand that's there for low rates. So I see it more as a way of lenders kind of differentiating what they're offering. And these building societies have always been better at, you know, um, appealing to niches in certain areas and being more flexible with their lending criteria than some of the big banks. Um, interestingly, this week, Leeds Building Society, so another building society, um, announced that it's tied up with the credit reference agency Experian um, and it's now going to use a borrower's financial history to factor into that mortgage lending process. So it's going to use your credit file that's held with Experian and look at the previous 12 months of regular direct debits. So this is things like council tax or even your Netflix subscription um, and use it as a measure of um, applicants' credit score. 
And this could help more people be approved for a mortgage because it shows that they're able to keep up with these payments. Um, so Leeds Building Society said that when it was testing this product, 7.5% of mortgage applicants would have got an improvement in their credit rating using the new system, which would have made them more eligible for a mortgage. Um, and this is really the issue of those younger um, borrowers not necessarily having a great credit score or not maybe having enough payments, regular payments going out to build up their credit score. So I think it's just another way where lenders are trying to diversify what they're offering and also really differentiate themselves from the big banks that have that power of high street presence and, and brand name to draw in customers. For many buyers, though, the difficult task of saving up for a deposit will still be a fact of life. Many people choose to use a LISA, Lifetime ISA, which gives them a nice government top-up. But there's so much confusion about the types of ISAs, what they can be used for, how much can be saved. I mean, the list really goes on, Laura. Yes, they're one of the most familiar savings products, but over the years, more and more versions of the ISA have been launched. So are they ripe for some reform? Let's talk to Rachel Vey, AJ Bell's Head of Policy Development. So first, Rachel, what's wrong with the current system? Well, Laura, ISAs are in a way a savings success story. They've been part of our financial landscape for about 25 years now. And there are many people out there who have used them for their savings. In a 2020-21 tax year, around 12 million people paid into them, and there are around 27 million ISA account holders. And they are a successful and recognisable brand. Um, AJ Bell recently carried out some research, and we got back results showing that 96% of UK adults have heard of ISAs, so that's practically everybody, and 71% said they were familiar with them. So they're well-known, uh, people are using them and uh, they're investing in them, but they are far from perfect. They started off sinful 25 years ago, but as you were saying, over the past few years, the government has been adding to them, although we've got different variants of ISA. And now we have the, well, the faintly ridiculous situation that there are six different types of ISA and they're all aimed at different groups of people and they're all trying to do different things. So if you're a beginner saver and you're setting off on your savings journey and you're trying to figure out what to do, the first question you've got to answer is, which one of these ISAs do I save in to? Oh, is it the right one for me and is it going to work for me? But even if you get that choice right to start off with, then your ISA doesn't change or grow with you. So you may start off as a cautious investor and starting off looking at cash investments but as time goes on you build up more confidence and then you want to start saving in stocks and shares but to do that you need to take out a brand new ISA and you need to set up a new ISA or you may decide that you want to start saving for a house deposit but again then that means taking out a lifetime ISA so another new ISA contract and I think this is just too complicated so AJ Bell's lobbying the government for change. What are we talking about here? Well, we want to make it simple and easy for people to say, really, just so they feel good investing. So what we want to do is to consolidate all these different types of ISA into just one single solution. So instead of deciding whether you need a cash ISA or a lifetime ISA or a stocks and shares ISA, you just tick the box that says ISA. You just choose one ISA. 
and it would have just one single set of rules, you could still pay £20,000 into it or £9,000 if you're younger than 18. But you could also invest in cash or stocks and shares and you could even build up an entitlement to a bonus from the start. And you could take it out with no penalties any time you want it or need it. So that completely removes the tricky question of which ISA do I start with or which one do I choose and when do I need to swap to a different one. What we really want to do is to give people a cradle-to-grave savings wrapper so that as you do change and you mature and your savings objectives change, then the ISA can change with you. And so one of the big draws of that lifetime ISA is the government bonus that you get on the money to really help boost your deposit savings. How would you deal with that? Would you be able to keep that bonus in this kind of one ISA system? Well, when we're looking at ISAs and when we looked at the current structure, we realised that the bonus is actually a potentially a really confusing part of the current system and the current offering. So I think there's going to be a lot of people out there who argue that just to get rid of it is too confusing, it adds too much complexity. But on the other hand, we do know that there are many ISA savers out there who have benefited from the bonus in the lifetime ISA, and there are many who are in a lifetime ISA at the moment who are saving for their first home. So I don't think it's an easy question, and it does need some thought. Really, what we want to do is to find a way of offering people a bonus to save, which is simple and it's easy to understand, but it doesn't result in a penalty if people take their money out and, and they use it for a different purpose than they originally intended. So they just take the money out of their lifetime ISA and before age 60 and don't use it for to pay a deposit on their house. But the government, I think, can also use this bonus as a way of incentivizing other savings behavior. So it doesn't just have to be about buying your first house. So for example, we could maybe even use the one ISA to fund improvements um, that people make to their house for climate or green reasons. So there's a lot of people at the moment who are thinking about or doing this or putting solar panels on the roof. So maybe we can incentivize the saving for that particular expense. Also, funding long-term care. Now, that's a really big, looming, quite frankly, downright scary expense for a lot of people. So maybe the government could use the one-iser to incentivize people to save for, for long-term care. And I think both of those ideas could really help people who are faced with these expenses in their lives. But ultimately, what we really want to do is to give people a, a single, simpler product to help them save their life. And we think a simpler ISA could do that. It could help build their financial resilience by giving them the ability to build a nest egg so that when the going gets tough, then they have that savings buffer to fall back on. Thanks, Rachel. Um, we will keep in touch with you about whether any of those changes come to fruition and you can come back on and explain them when they do. Look forward to it. That's about it for this week's podcast, but don't forget to subscribe so the latest episode is delivered to you as soon as it's available every week. And do get in touch with any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us podcast at ajbell.co.uk or you can find us on social media. Next week, Dan and Danny will be covering all of the market's news and I'll be speaking to Sunil Krishnan, Head of Multi-Asset Funds at Aviva. Until then, thanks for listening. 
before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.